Delighted that you're here. Hope you've got your Bible with you and eager to take it and study with us. Encourage you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've been working our way through 1 Timothy, some of our studies. We're ready for chapter 5. We'll wind it up in looking at chapter 6 and our study next time. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here is what 1 Timothy is about. It is about what to teach, how to teach. Deals with sound doctrine in public worship, church officers, false teachers. And in chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the care of the members of the church, at least as DeWelt outlined that. We're going to do as we've done with other chapters. We're going to look at an overview of the chapter quickly and then come back and list some things that we learn about what we need to teach and how a teacher is to conduct his or herself. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll subdivide each one of these sections, but here are four sections of the chapter. What is the chapter about? I call it simply instructions regarding various groups. Here are some instructions to Timothy about how to deal with certain people and how certain people should be handled by the church, by him as a minister or a preacher of the gospel. He starts off with verses 1 and 2 about treatment of younger and older. That is a section that deals with reprimanding or correcting someone. We'll get to that in a moment. And then there's the section about widows, who is to take care of certain widows and qualifications for those who are to be taken care of. Who is to, there's at least three different categories that we talk about there. Then there are elders and how elders should be handled in verses 17 to 20, part of that grows into 20 to 20, uh, 21 to 25, but I call the rest of that section just simply personal instructions. Let's make a quick run through the chapter. Let's talk about the treatment of the younger and older, or older and younger, as you, however you prefer to look at that. This is a section that deals with rebuke and a reprimand, and all four categories mentioned here are talking about reprimanding, though there may be some other implications that come to play. But he says, do not rebuke an older man. The King James will say an elder. That's not an elder in the sense of the office of an elder, but an older person. You say, how do you know? I know that because he mentions four categories. He talks about an elder, and then he talks about older women, and then younger men and younger women. And so, because of the categories, he's talking about older men, not those in the office of an elder. But the text says, rebuke not an older man. We'll get to that. What does that mean a little bit later? But his point is... Rather than approach an older man as, uh, as if you're going to be combative with him, don't rebuke him severely, but admonish him like you would your own father. And so older men, you treat them as fathers. Younger men, you're, you, they may need some rebuke, but don't rebuke them with severity, but treat them as if they are your brothers. Your older women as if they're your mothers and younger women as if they're your sisters. So this has to do with reprimanding. There needs to be some reprimanding, but how you approach that, approach them with respect. Now we'll come back and define more of that in a moment. We're getting just an overview. Beginning at verse 3, he talks about widows. Let me get ahead of myself to suggest that in the section of widows, he's going to talk about older widows and younger widows. Now that doesn't mean old widows versus young, but younger in the sense of this context, and we'll define that. Let's talk about the older widows beginning at verse 3. He said, honor widows that are really widows. King James will say widows indeed, truly destitute, in other words. Honor them. 
Now that would suggest that you hold them in esteem, that's true, but that's not really what he means in this context. Honor them in the sense you take care of them and see that their needs are supplied as per the context. Gives me evidence of that. Now beginning at verse 3, he says, here's what you do with widows who are widows who are truly destitute widows indeed. First of all, you honor them, beginning also at verse 4, and we'll drop down to verse 8. That is, they should be cared for by family. And so here is someone who is truly a widow. Well, first of all, let that take place with reference to family responsibility. If any widow have children or grandchildren, let them first show piety at home and repay their parents. For that's good and respectable before God. So the first responsibility is children to take care of their, their parents grandchildren to take care of their grandparents before it becomes the burden of the church. We'll see that in a moment at verse 16. Drop down to verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially they of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever or an infidel, the King James says. Now in this context, while that may apply to a father taking care of his children, the man is to provide for his own, or a man is to take care of his wife, that's true. And that's good use of this passage because it talks about a man taking care of his own. But in this context, it's talking about taking care of your own parents or grandparents who may be in need. If anyone doesn't do that, they have denied the faith in practice. And let's go back to verse 5 through 7. Here are some qualifications or qualities of a widow indeed. If she's going to qualify as a widow indeed, then she needs to meet these qualifications. That uh, if she is really a widow... And she's left alone, she trusts in God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about widows that would be the subject of church benevolence. And I know that because later in verse 16, if any man or woman that believe have widows, let them relieve them and let not the church be burdened, that it may relieve those that are widows indeed. The church can take out of its treasury and help those who are widows indeed. Truly destitute widows. But what are the qualifications for that? Well, they are to be those who have, uh, according to verse 5, they trust in God. They continue in supplication, prayer night and day. She's a dedicated, faithful Christian. In contrast to that, the woman who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, he says. These things need to be taught and they need to be commanded. Now, verses 9 and 10 talk about widows that are to be taken into the number, into the enrollment. What's this about? Well, notice in verse 9, do not let a widow under 60 years of age be taken into the number. Seems to be talking about a situation where they're put on a permanent uh, enrollment so that they're taken care of out of the church. Not a temporary circumstance, but rather on a permanent enrollment where the church is taking care of them on a perpetual basis. And so here's what he says. Here are the qualifications for that. Those that are taken into the number are not to be under 60 years of age. Uh, they are not to be taken into the number unless they've been the husband of one wife, reported of good works, she's brought up children, lodged strangers, washed to the disciples' feet, and to relieve the afflicted, and she's diligently followed every good work. In other words, for one to be taken into that number, she needs to meet these qualifications. Now he shifts and talks about younger widows. He begins at verse 13, says, refuse them. Not refused in helping them, but they are to be refused from that number, from that enrollment. Some translations will use the term enrollment, but refuse younger widows. That doesn't mean that you don't, on, on a temporary basis, relieve the needs of a, of a widow who's younger, but she's not to be in that permanent enrollment then. Now, why is that the case? Well, he says in verse 11, 12, and 13, they may, if they put on this, this permanent enrollment so that she is now has some free time and younger in her years, 
She may develop this characteristic. Look at verse 11. She may begin to grow wanton against Christ and they desire to marry. Perhaps those are two different things. Some try to tie those together, and maybe they are, but it seems that they grow away from Christ because of perhaps idle time. They will choose to marry, and now they're in the permanent enrollment when they're now married and someone to take care of them, and having the condemnation because they've cast off the first faith. That's the idea of, of them uh, having being wanton against Christ. And besides that, they may, because they're idle, verse 13, I'm paraphrasing, they develop the practice of wandering about from house to house and become busybodies and gossips. And so they're not to be put in the uh, permanent enrollment. But here's what his desire is, verse 14. He said, I would that the younger widows, instead of being put in the young, uh, into the enrollment, let them marry, bear children, manage the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Now notice at verse 16 now. Here's who is to care for widows. He's talked about older widows, younger widows. Who's to care for the widows? If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them. Take care of your own needy. That the church not be burdened, that it, that is the church, may relieve those who are widows indeed. Now that's just an overview. We'll come back to widows in just a moment. Let's talk about elders. Beginning at verse 17, let elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. We'll talk about what that means in a moment, but it means financial support uh, can be supplied to, for those who are doing the work of elders, but they should be counted worthy of double honor, verses 17 and 18. Now, beginning at verse 19, he talks about making an accusation against an elder. And so he says at verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. That is, when someone comes and they make an accusation against an elder, don't accept that unless it's well established. Now, why would there be an accusation against an elder? Because of the work they're doing, verse 17, of ruling. That is, because of their leadership position, they may be criticized. They may be the target of someone who's trying to defame them because of the direction where they're leading. Perhaps maybe in taking action against them somehow. But be that as it may, verse 17 says, uh, uh, verse 8, 19 rather, Do not receive an accusation except it be well established. But when it is well established, he said at verse 20, let those who sin be rebuked before all. There comes a time when it's well established, even elders need to be rebuked and rebuked publicly and even removed from their office. Now let's begin at verse 21. Verse 21 deals with some personal instructions. And some of this has to do with the eldership that we've just talked about, and we'll tie that in a little bit later. But at verse 21, he says that things are to be observed without partiality. That is, the work that you're doing, Timothy, that I've left you at Ephesus to do, do it without partiality. What does that mean? We'll make application of that in a moment. Then he says, lay hands suddenly on no man. Seems to be an appointment. Don't appoint anyone suddenly. And then he says, keep yourself pure and furthermore, drink wine for your stomach's sake. And then he says, the actions of some are made manifest. Some are known now and others follow them to judgment, whether it be good or whether it be bad. That seems to have to do with some connection with the eldership that we'll talk about here in just a moment. Now, I know that's a quick overview, but here he's dealing with instructions regarding various groups, treatment of various groups, older and younger, the widows, the elders, and then some personal instructions. Now, let's learn some things here that we as teachers, whether you're teaching a Bible class, teaching your children, preaching from time to time, things that we ought to teach on and how we should conduct ourselves as we teach. Let's start with this. We need to treat others, verses 1 and 2, with respect. The subject in verses 1 and 2 is the idea of a rebuke or a reprimand. Rebuke not an elder or an older man. Verse 1. 
Some will need rebuke. Some will need condemnation. Some concepts need rebuking, but some people need rebuking. Sometimes even older people may need some rebuke. They may need some condemnation. But the idea here of rebuke, A.T. Robertson observes that this word rebuke is only used here in this text. And it has the idea, it means to strike upon or to beat upon, used figuratively in the sense with words rather than with fists. It is the idea, it's the same concept of taking your fist and beating upon someone. In other words, you, you, you're abusive to them, you're abrasive to them. You come on strong to them, you're doing it with words instead of with fists. And so don't treat an older man with that kind of roughness as if you're dealing with a peer. As if you're dealing with someone who is younger, as if you're dealing with a child. The fact that he's older means he deserves some respect. But notice in verse 1, rather exhort him, he said. Now that word exhort means to call to one side, to summon or to address, to speak to. It has the idea of consolation or encouragement, to strengthen by consolation or encouragement or to console. That doesn't mean that someone who is in sin, who is an older person, you call them to your side and you console and you comfort them. That's not the idea. But you approach them gently as you would your own father. It's kind of hard for a son who has respect for his father when he sees his father do something wrong to deal with him like he does appear, to talk with him roughly, to talk with him like he would his own child. But he makes gentle approaches to him. Perhaps you've had to do that. I have had to deal with some older men who were my peers, who I looked up to, who fell into sin, and I have to talk to them. I say, this feels strange. I'm the younger one. You're the older one. You're old enough to be my dad, and I'm having to talk to you about your sin. It ought to be the other way around. You approach them like you would your own father. So the point is, you treat them with respect. Now, let's talk about the people who should be treated with respect here in verses 1 and 2. Well, older men, he said, treat them like you would your father. Now, if he's done wrong, go talk to him about the wrong. If he's in sin, talk to him about his sin. Don't let up on the sin, but deal with him like you would talk to your father. Talk gently and approach him like you would trying to talk to your own father. Older women, they may need some rebuke. But you treat them like you would uh, the young men, like you would your own brothers. But what about the older women? You treat them like you would your mother. And when you deal with someone who is... The younger men, treat them like they're your peer rather than looking down upon them like they're something unworthy of your attention. And the same thing is true with younger women. You treat them as you would your sister. Now, you add something that's quite interesting here. Notice at verse 2, when he talks about young Timothy dealing with the young women, he said, do so with all purity. Make sure that your conduct and your contact is well above board. And all your dealings with the sisters. In other words, don't put yourself in tempting circumstances and situations. Well, the patent suggested in his commentary on Timothy that preachers, especially young preachers, need to guard themselves carefully against any indiscretion that might reflect on their purity and proper conduct. Not a word, a look, or an action should ever suggest improper feelings on their part. Their character and usefulness depend so much upon their observance of this precept. What he's telling young Timothy, you want to be effective as a preacher, so don't destroy that effectiveness by being disrespectful to the older men or women 
and by abusing that relationship with the younger women. Don't do that. Let's begin at verse 3. Here's something else we learned. We need to teach about benevolence. We need to teach in the classes about benevolence. We need to teach from the pulpit about benevolence. We need to teach in the home about benevolence. And here's what we need to teach. That the first responsibility is on the family. Let's go back to verse 4, verse 8, and verse 16. Look at verse 4. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents. Someone's in need. The first responsibility is the children and then the grandchildren. Look at verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially they of his own household, he's denied the faith. He's denied the faith in practice. He may not in, in words, but in practice he said no to the faith. Now verse 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. The first responsibility lies upon the family. I want to tell you, being in the position of an elder and a preacher as well, sometimes someone may come and say, could the church help in this circumstance? And when we ask, you know, what, what about, do, do you not have children or do you not have family? Do you not have parents or children or grandchildren that can have? Well, I don't want to burden them. I don't want to bother them with that. Well, that's not God's plan. God's plan is you do burden your family with that. That's their responsibility. The church is not to be burdened with that. Now, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, the church is limited in its benevolence to take care of those who are saints. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. But not all needy saints are to be helped by the church. Just because one is a saint and they're a Christian doesn't mean they're the burden of the church. And so if it be someone in my family that I can take care of, I take care of them rather than put that on the burden of the church. That's the point of the teaching here. Now, let's consider the fact, verse 16 says, the church is responsible to care for widows indeed. Now let's go to verse 16, then we'll go back to verse 3. That the church may not be burdened that it, that is the church, may relieve those who are widows indeed or really widows, depending on your translation. In other words, really destitute. Now who is it that they're to take care of? Not just anybody, but they are to take care of widows indeed. Well, he just told us who widows indeed were back at verse 3. That is that she is, uh, verse 5 rather, she's one who trusts in God. She's left alone. She trusts in God. She continues in prayers night and day. She lives in, and she doesn't live in pleasure. But she is alive unto God. She's in a good relationship with God. So she truly is in need because she's destitute according to verse 3. She has no one to care for her. Because if she did, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 9, they would be taking care of her. She's truly destitute. Let's go to verse 16. Here's something else we need to teach on benevolence. That there's a difference in individual and church responsibility. This is a great passage to make this point. There's a difference in individual and church responsibility. We see this in principle in this passage, not just in the application that's made here. Let's go to verse 16. If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them. Here is an individual's responsibility. And let not the church be charged. Here's something an individual is doing, the church is not doing. That it may relieve those who are widows indeed. So I'm seeing a difference in the individual and the church in their responsibility. Here's a responsibility an individual has, the church does not have. Well, you see, that was the basic principle in the institutional controversy. And so when we go through all of that history, all of that history was they failed to make a distinction in the individual and the church. Well, in all of the social gospel controversy, there's a failure to make the distinction in the individual and the church. 
Now, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but mark my word, if you live long enough to see the next apostasy, you remember this, this prophecy I'm making. The next apostasy will fail to make a distinction in the individual in the church. And what churches will be doing, they'll be taking out of their treasury and funding things that may not be wrong within themselves that is not a work of the church because they fail to make a distinction in the work of the individual and the church. And we're not teaching on that. We're not preaching on that in most places. And so consequently, we need to understand this principle. There's a difference in the individual and in the church responsibility. So we need to drive home the principle in the Bible classes to our children at home, the principle of following Bible authority. The reason we don't take out of the church treasury and do this activity or that activity is that's us as an individual to take care of that. It's not the church's burden. There's a difference in the church and the individual. Now let's go back to verses 3 to 16. This is something 1 Timothy 5 presents clearer than any other passage. And that is there is a difference in temporary benevolence and in regular care. There is a distinction that is drawn. Now what do we mean? Well, there was temporary or emergency benevolence that included many saints on several occasions. Acts 2 would be one example of that. Acts 11 would be another example. I skipped Acts 6, as you recognize, on purpose. Because it's going to fit another category. But Acts 2, Acts 11, 1 Corinthians 16, the same events talked about in Romans 15, which is not on the screen, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, all talk about some general benevolence to saints in general in an area where, for example, there was a famine. All right, so here is temporary or emergency benevolence that wasn't ongoing week after week after week after week and year after year after year. Those were emergency cases. Perhaps that's what's being talked about in, down through verse, uh, verse 8, 3 to 8. That here is a widow indeed, verse 16 as well, being taken care of out of the church treasury. But they're not part of that number. On the other hand, there was the number, Vincent says, that is the enrollment in the body of widows who receive church support. That is an ongoing and permanent help. Because they're above that age of 60. And because they have no one else to care for them, then they're put on the, the permanent role and the church takes care of them. The church provides their food, their clothing, and their shelter. That seems to be what verses 9 and 10 are talking about. Again, I quote from Brother Patton. This verse shows that while any indigent saint may receive temporary relief from the church, those enrolled as a permanent charge must have qualifications given here. So could the church help a widow younger than 60? Certainly so but not put into that permanent enrollment where that goes on and on and on. That's not to be the case. There's a big difference in those two. Now let's look at verses 5 and 6. We need to do some teaching about contrasting lifestyles. While it is in the context of caring for widows, there is a contrasting lifestyle that's mentioned here in verses 5 and 6. How so? Well, verse 5 says, There is one who trusts in God, and they pray, and they live. So let's see what it says. Verse 5. Now she who is really a widow is one who's left alone. She trusts in God. What do you mean she trusts in God? She has her hope set on God. The American Standard so translates. She settled in God. She didn't just believe in God. She trusts in God. She has her hope settled in God. Do you have your hope settled in God? Is your faith that deep? She continues to pray. She doesn't just pray. But I want you to notice at verse 5 that she continues in supplication and prayers night and day. She doesn't just pray occasionally. 
She doesn't just pray when there is a crisis or a need, but she continually prays night and day. Reminds me of Daniel in Daniel 6 in verse 10. And she lives. She has life. Contrasted to verse 6. She's not separated from God. She's in a relationship with God. So here is a lifestyle of one who trusts in God. They pray all of the time. And they have life relationship with God. Now the contrast is in verse 6. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. The American Standard says she giveth herself to pleasure. In other words, she pretty much does whatever she wants. In contrast now to trusting in God. And praying she lives for herself. Rather than being settled in her hope with God and praying to God all the time, she's trusting in herself. And she's living for herself, living in pleasure. And consequently, she's dead. She's separated from God even while she lives. Now let's get to something even more practical than all of that. And that is perhaps being gossips and busybodies. In verses, in verse 13. One of the dangers of taking this younger widow and enrolling her into this permanent circumstance when she could well marry again, the text says, and then have a husband that cares for her. She's not to be put into that number because she could easily, because now of idle time on her hand, become a gossip and a busybody. And so we need to warn about gossip. So let's look at verse 13. They wander about from house to house. And not only idle, but gossips and busybodies. Those are two different words. Let's define the word gossip. King James says tattlers. The word gossip is hard to define, and at least in everyday conversation. So why, why do I say that? Because if we don't like what somebody is saying, we are easily labeled that as gossip. But if I want to repeat that, and it's true, then I'm not gossiping, I'm just stating facts. I'm never gossiping. Everybody else is always gossiping. Some want to label anything that's said about someone else as gossip. Well, that can't be true. The very author that writes here telling us gossip is wrong said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. He was saying something about somebody and it wasn't very pleasant. It wasn't very complimentary, was it? Demas hath forsaken me, he said. Well, he's telling something not very complimentary about somebody. So what is gossip? Well, let's define gossip. We can get Barnes first, and then I'll get you even a better definition, I think, of that. But Barnes says it literally means overflowing, and he's right about that. Then overflowing with talk, pratters, triflers. They would learn all the news and become acquainted with the secrets of families. And of course, indulging in much idle and improper conversation, our word gossipers would actually ex accurately express the meaning here. The noun does not occur elsewhere in the New Testament. The verb in 3 John 10 is translated pratting against. Well, that really helped you, didn't it? Let's go a little further. A.T. Robertson says the word, now this is where it gets interesting. The word literally means to boil up like blowing soap bubbles. I like that. It means blowing up. Here's this overflowing idea. The word gossip means blowing up like blowing up soap bubbles. Ellensworth and Hatton's handbook says it means to talk nonsense. You say, well, I still haven't made the connection. What, what's wrong about? They go further to define it means 
talking nonsense without any understanding of what is being said to be irresponsible in our speech. So the idea of a gossip is not one who says, you know what, Alexander the coppersmith did me evil. They're not really gossiping. Stating a fact, and I'll stand behind that, and I'll tell Alexander the coppersmith to his face, he did me evil. What's wrong with that? It's not gossip. But it's when one is talking about things they have no idea and have any understanding of what they're talking about, particularly in other people's affairs. You've been around people who talk and they talk and they talk and they're telling you all kinds of information. They don't even have all their facts straight, but they're telling you all the information. They're gossiping in the sense they're talking about things, they're bubbling up smoke or they're bubbling up uh, soap bubbles, kind of, so to speak. In other words, they are overflowing with words when they don't even have an understanding and they're irresponsible in what they're, what they're talking about. They don't have all their facts together yet. Let's go further. Connected closely with that is the idea of being a busy body, verse 13. What is a busy body? The word properly means working all around and overdoing, overworking. Nothing wrong with overworking, but it's an inner meddler. A person who has nothing to do on their own and commonly find employment and interest in other people's affairs, and so they're idle and they go about talking about things that they ought not be talking about. In other words, they're meddling in other people's affairs. So quite, quite often those two words go hand in hand and mean the same thing. Let's get some insight from another text that may help us. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse, verse 11, Paul writes, and the New King James is quite interesting, And that is that you aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. That is when I mind my own business and I'm not trying to meddle in someone else's affairs, trying to settle everything for them, trying to settle all of their matters, trying to tell everybody else about all of their matters. I'm not trying to intermingle with other people's affairs. I'm not irresponsible in my talk. I'm minding my own business. That'll settle a lot of church problems. That settles a lot of relationship problems when we are not gossips and busybodies. So let's go further. Verse 14, we need to do, do some teaching in our classes and in the pulpit on family responsibilities. Let's go back to verse 14. Paul said, I would that the younger widows marry and bear children and guide the house. So here was some instruction for younger widows. And that is that they would be, if they're going to, rather than be put on the permanent enrollment of the church, let them marry. That's the answer to the problems of verse 13. That is, instead of being gossips and busybodies and wandering about from house to house, the answer to the problem is let them marry and let them bear children. That's the answer to the problem. So instead of being taken into the number, she now has a husband to take care of her. Verse 14, he says, let them marry and bear children. This would busy herself with the children and bear responsibility in contrast to being irresponsible, verse 13, well, going about from house to house and becoming idols and becoming gossips. One of her primary roles is that of rearing her children. As per this verse, there's no place that she could better serve the Lord than rearing of her children in the home. I like what Barnes says. It says, when she is absent, there is a silent evil reigning which can only be removed by her return. When the wife is from the, away from the home and from the children and not there to rear her children, indeed, a silent evil is reigning. Now, verse 14 that she managed the house. The King James says she guides the house. What's the idea? That is, she has home and domestic responsibilities. Want a good commentary on that? Look at Titus 2 and verse 5. Remember, these books are parallel, written about the same time. Uh, and he writes to Timothy, telling him 
that you need to teach the younger women to manage the house, guide the house. But he tells Titus, she's to be a keeper at home. Those are identical phrases, seemingly, meaning the same kind of thing. Now let's go to verse 17 through 18. We need to teach about the role and the responsibility toward elders in 17 through 20. Now this gets interesting as we tie the last section to that a little bit later. But first of all, let's talk about the role. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well, before we talk about them being counted worthy of honor, let's talk about the role of ruling. The idea of ruling here means to be an overseer, to be a superintendent, or to preside over, according to Kenneth Woos. And so it's the idea of leadership, and it's the idea of oversight. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, Acts 20, verse 28, elders have the oversight. It's the idea of leadership. The idea of being an elder, for those who may have goals of becoming an elder, and hopefully there are many who do, the idea, and those who, who may not have a goal, but you wonder, what's it like to be an elder? It is not the idea of being a boss or having great authority as it is responsibility. Grave responsibility put up on the shoulder for the, for the oversight. Now notice the role, though, is they're also, verse 17, laboring in word and in doctrine. Not only do they have this oversight, rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and in doctrine. Well, elders are to have the ability to teach. Titus 1 says they ought to have the ability to convict the gainsayer. In other words, answer the false teacher. Doesn't mean he's going to be a debater. It means that he can answer the false teaching. So when false teaching is done in class or the pulpit, an elder can mount the pulpit if he needs to and respond and point out the error that's involved. He labors in word and in doctrine and he has authority and he rules. Now, the support that he's to be given. This is the only text that talks about this. In the New Testament, so let's go to verse 17. Let them be counted worthy of double honor. What does he mean, double honor? Well, they're to be honored and esteemed, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, verse 17, for the work's sake, that is, because of what they do. The idea of double honor means that there's a time and a place for full-time eldership. Are those in the full-time eldership? In other words, be supported for their work. Look at verse 18. He says, for, here's your evidence that that could be done. They could be given double honor. What do you mean? Well, for, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy. In other words, you let the ox eat while he's treading. In other words, you ought to be fed from, from the things he's working in. And here's a quotation from Luke 10 from Jesus, the laborer is worthy of his wages. In other words, you ought to be paid. That same argument is made in 1 Corinthians 9 for paying preachers to preach the gospel. Though there have been very few circumstances in my lifetime, but I have known of this, and perhaps you have too, where there have been full-time paid elders. Is there anything wrong with taking an elder and saying that we're going to support you fully, like we support a preacher, and we're going to give you full support so you can devote your full time to being an elder and doing the work of elder? Nothing wrong with that, because that's what this text is talking about. It's talking about supporting an elder for, for the work that he's doing. And so there, there have been times where there have been full-time elders who are paid fully to do the work of elders. So they, they're worthy of support is the idea. But they're also worthy of respect. Verses 19 and 20. There is respect that is due because of the office that they hold. Whether you agree or not, that is with them. Though you like what they do or not, it's like respecting an officer of the law, respecting the president. You respect the office. Respect that office. But don't listen, look at verse 19, to charges without strong evidence. So someone comes and makes an accusation against an elder, demand the evidence, make sure there are two or three witnesses. And those then that sin, he said, when it's established, those elders need to be rebuked. 
So do you ignore the sin of an elder? No, but you well establish it. And when it's well established that he sinned, then he needs to be rebuked before the whole congregation and removed from his office. That is, he doesn't need to continue in that, especially if he doesn't repent of that. Now let's go to verse 21 and talk about do things without prejudice and without partiality. He said, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. Let's talk about without prejudice. That is, we are to function in all areas of life without preferring one before another. The King James would so word it. In other words, without judging beforehand, prejudice means you judge beforehand without due consideration to the facts before all the evidence is in. The Proverbs warns against that in Proverbs 18 and, and in verse 13. Don't answer a matter before you hear it. Don't make up your mind before all the data is in. That's prejudice. So in other words, don't allow friendships and positions and money and emotions to cloud your view of others. Now what's he talking about in the context? Perhaps two things. And I'll give you the two, and maybe it's a combination of both, and if it may be a general principle where it does apply to both. Some think it's talking about the immediate context where he's just talking about rebuking an elder. Make sure you don't function out of prejudice, where you are prejudiced and you are driven because of a lack of friendship, because of some other thoughts you have in your mind, uh, because of emotions you have, and you're prejudiced and you're ready for that charge to be leveled when you don't have all the evidence in, you're ready to listen to any charge. And so make sure you're functioning without prejudice. Some think that it applies to the next verse, and we'll talk about it and we'll give evidence of this at verse 23, verse 22, the appointment of elders. And make sure that's without prejudice, that you're ready to put this man into the eldership and into leadership position without giving any consideration whether he's qualified or not because of prejudice that's, that's in your mind. In order to be careful, whether you're rebuking or you're appointing, wisdom and care needs to be given. Now, verse 21 also says without partiality. Partiality has to do with unequal treatment of people. Don't have one set of rules for one person and then apply a different set of rules to someone else. Don't have one set of rules for your friends when accusations are made against them. No, I'm not going to accept that till you prove that. But here's an elder over here, and I'm going to buy that without any evidence because I wanted that to be true. That's with partiality. DeWelt says that prejudice is preference by prejudgment. Partiality is a choice made of personal advantage. Again, it may have reference to the appointment of men to the office. It may have reference to the idea of, of reproving them in the context. Now that ties with the next statement at verse 22. Don't be hasty. Look at 1 Timothy 5 and verse 20. Lay, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other men's sins, but keep yourself pure. Let's talk about the idea of laying on of hands. The laying on of hands here probably has reference to pointing to a work of some sort. That's how it was used in Acts 13. When the men went forth to preach on the first missionary journey, they laid their hands on them. Not to impart spiritual gifts. Uh, not to somehow do miraculous work, but it was a symbolic pointing to a job and to a work that was to be done. It's used that way in a number of texts, but Acts 13 is one of the more uh, classics to uh, illustrate that. Something is talking about the appointment of elders that had been referred to in chapter 3. So it does seemingly have reference to appointment of some men somehow. 
And in fact, a couple of translations, if I can find them real quickly. Holman says, do not be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. That's Holman's Christian translation. The New Living Translation said, don't be in a hurry to appointing church leaders. That seems to be what he's talking about. So don't be in a hurry. And it may be in the context of rebuking an elder. One may be removed. You want to appoint someone else in their place or just the appointment of elders. But don't be too hasty in that. Now, what's interesting is as he goes further. Now, he said, so, and some, by the way, think he's talking about appointing men to preach or encouraging men to preach. Don't be hasty about that either. But notice at verse 22, don't lay hands on anyone hastily or suddenly. In other words, don't be hasty. Don't be sudden. Don't approach hastily. One translation would word that. When we do that, look at this verse 22, we share in other people's sins. Now, get the point. Now, this is interesting. If we're real hasty in appointing leaders without giving, giving consideration whether they're qualified... We just rush to judgment on that. We're not giving due consideration to that. We could be guilty of other men's sins. For example, a man goes, leads the church astray, and I was the one that pushed him in that direction. Let's put him in the office. I bear some responsibility in that. Or I, I was rushed to judgment, try to get him into the eldership, and so we point him into the eldership, and now we've got him in, and now we have a problem with him, and now the church is in disruption. I bear some responsibility because I was hasty in, in trying to push that. That's the idea. In other words, there's time for wisdom and for judgment is the point that he's making. Now, let's go to another thing that's not on the screen. And that's in verse 24 and 25. Seemingly, it's in that same vein, in that same connection. And that is, he said, some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. What's he talking about? I don't have a clue. <laughs> For sure, but I do have a, I, say, I shouldn't say I don't have a clue. I'm not sure. But it seems that it has reference to this being hasty back in verse 22. What's he talking about? When you're appointing someone... Here's, he just states a general principle to which there could be some application. What's the general principle? There are some people whose faults and their sins are clearly evident. They, they come to surface. You don't have to look for them. They, they're, they're, their lack of wisdom, their lack of judgment, uh, their lack of faith, their lack of discretion, their uh, etc. Things they do wrong, that, that comes to the surface. There are others that their works will follow them to judgment and they're not easily seen on the surface. The same thing is true with good works. Some bubbling up right on the surface and others, you've got to look for it, for it to come to surface. What, what's the point? That may have a connection, back to verse 22, of laying hands suddenly on someone or pointing them hastily because it may be that when you point someone hastily, you're not seeing anything on the surface, but after you get to know them for a while, you may see some of that come to the surface that you didn't see before. Wished we'd have seen that before we appointed him. Wished we'd have known that was his position. Wished we'd have known that was his characteristic. Wished we'd have known that. We probably wouldn't have appointed him, is the idea. Well, that's 1 Timothy chapter 5. There's more in chapter 5 that we could talk about. But that's a good bit of information found in 1 Timothy 5. An overview of the chapter, listing of some things that we ought to teach our children Teaching our Bible classes, teaching the pulpit, 
even teach our friends and our neighbors. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins and acknowledge your faith and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand, while we sing?